Ephesians chapter 5, 18, and Romans chapter 14. what Paul says. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless actions, but be filled with the Spirit. This is God's Word. The title of the sermon this morning is called The Alcohol, uh, Alcohol and the Christian. Alcohol and the Christian. When we run into something in the scriptures that deals with anything, we, we understand that this is, this is the very words of God coming down to us from heaven, and so we are dealing with it because God speaks with it. Now, the main point of this sentence is not alcohol. It's the Holy Spirit. It's being filled with the Holy Spirit and all that that implies. So in order to do this text justice, what we're going to do is we're going to take this Sunday to deal with alcohol because the Word of God does, and we're going to take an entire summer to deal with the Holy Spirit. Sound okay? Okay. You guys all right? Yeah. Woo! <laughs> Woo! Um, I'm not going to, in the time that I have, I'm not going to have time to cover everything that there is to speak about on this topic. And so we wanted to recommend a book to you if you want to know more or if I uh, did not treat this, uh, uh, a certain part of this that you were hoping I would. The book is called God Gave Wine by Kenneth uh, Gentry. It is a biblical theology of alcohol in the scriptures. Just about everything a Christian should know when uh, pertaining to that. Um, if that's something that you wanted to look into more, this is uh, a, a resource that uh, church planners here and the uh, elders and staff at Reality have, um, have held up as, as one of our favorites. So that'll be at the book table. If it's not there, when you go out there, you can get it on Amazon. Um, other than that, let me pray for this morning that the Holy Spirit would guide us. God, we ask that as we open up your, your word today, that you would speak to us. Know that the, this very topic can pull out a lot of different emotions and issues and other unsaid things and a lot of different people in our church today. And so I want to be careful, careful to only speak that which your word speaks and to be led by your Holy Spirit. And so I ask right now that you would do that, that you would come upon me to speak rightly what you have to say to the church. I also pray that your Holy Spirit would come upon us as a church to listen rightly to the things that you have to say. That when the proclamation of the word meets the open ears of the Christian, there would be sanctification and life change as people are encountering your word. Ultimately, I pray, God, that you would open our eyes through the very things that you have to say today, right here and right now, to see Jesus Christ like we've never seen him before. More wonderful, more glorious, more beautiful, and more sufficient for all of our needs and for our lives as believers than we've ever known before. We pray that you would radically transform us by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. What I want to do is look at the subject of alcohol now that Paul has broached the topic in Ephesians chapter 5. I want to look at it from a broad bird's eye point of view. And as we go through this sermon to begin to hone in our focus on the details, starting with a broad bird's eye view and honing in on the details, I'm going to do this through five points. I'm going to start by asking the question, what does the Bible have to say in general about alcohol? Two, I'm going to follow that up by asking, well, what does the law have to say about alcohol specifically? Then I'm going to ask, what does the gospel have to say about alcohol? And then fourthly, I'm going to ask, what does love have to say about alcohol? And then my last point will be, what is Paul trying to tell us about it right here and right now? 
Hopefully, as we go through this, you'll see that Paul, while using maybe alcohol as a case study, is speaking about a variety of things. And I pray that as we go, the Holy Spirit would begin to pull out some of those things in our lives this morning. What does the Bible have to say about this subject? This is what we're going to do. The first place that we have to start, whenever we're speaking about stuff like this, any time that the Bible does not specifically give instruction about something, if there's not an implicit or explicit instruction or prohibition on something in the created order, we often err, and this is where the church often, uh, we, we often err, I do this too, we often err by failing to maintain a balance. And sometimes this comes because we start from our fallen nature. In other words, we say, well, we're sinners, everything is sinful, so don't touch anything. This is probably the wrong place to start with just about anything. We should start at the beginning of Genesis with the created order that God created the world and he created all things to be good. So there's this worldview uh, handed down from Plato and from the Gnostics that teaches people, and we have kind of adopted this sometimes, that there is something inherently holy about spiritual things, and there's something inherently evil about material things. So whether it's cars, or whether it's alcohol, or whether it's uh, sexual intimacy, this was a common belief with the Gnostics that there was, there was somehow this divide between the two and in order to be a more holy person, you, need to, you needed to get away from those physical material things and just be a really spiritual person. This could not be farther from the biblical worldview in scripture. Not only is the spirit good, but we see that through creation, God created everything with the original tent to be good also. And Paul says in Romans chapter 14, verse 14, I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. What that means specifically about the topic that we have about alcohol is that a glass of wine sitting on a table is not, does not constitute the evil of Satan incarnate, okay? Simply by putting a glass or a beverage on a table does not make evil just kind of wriggle out of the table for nothing. It's just stuff. However, anything can become Morally wrong, and even evil, depending on the way that it's used. So the issue for Paul isn't the actual object or the substance, it's the person. And this is where the Bible begins to pry into the heart of a person. This leads us to our our second point. What does the Bible say specifically through the law? We talked about this last week where we spoke of the law of God, those things that God tells us to do as not coming from uh, this angry grandfather who's trying to be a Scrooge, who's trying to ruin all of our fun, create parameters just to stifle our lives, but he's a good heavenly father who loves his people and who does, who does these things, who gives us commands and instructions to maintain his glory, but also to maintain our joy knowing that we will often go veer off to the left or to the right, sinning, and sin destroys the human person. So God in his mercy and in his grace tells us what his will is. And what does it say about alcohol specifically? The scriptures actually have a lot to say about alcohol. There are 241 verses pertaining to it. But we could funnel all of those into four straightforward things, four straightforward commands in the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. If you wanted to know what is God, what are the parameters God puts around people as it pertains to alcoholic drinks? Well, we could start with this. God commands people not to go against their conscience. Romans chapter 14 verse 23 says, whoever doubts stands condemned if he eats Because his eating is not from a conviction. And everything that is not from a conviction is sin. Meaning there will be things in our lives that the Bible does not specifically condemn, but that the Holy Spirit in you will. And he's speaking through your conscience. We're not to disregard that. Of course, our conscience has to be shaped by the scriptures. 
It has to be renewed by the Holy Spirit. Paul said in Romans chapter two that everybody, even the non-believer, has a conscience. We have the law of God written on our hearts. We don't always follow it. Sometimes it's seared, Paul says in another book. It gets to this place where we've been disobeying it for so long that even though the Holy Spirit may be speaking to us, we're simply blind and deaf to the words that he's saying. We've seared our conscience, conscience. we've gotten to a place where you can't even hear it anymore. And so, this is a command of God, don't go against your conscience, but it's not a perfect thing, right? It's not the only thing. So in addition to that, you should be listening maybe to your spouse, maybe to your calm group, maybe to some people in your life who are also filled with the Holy Spirit, but that is a clear command in Scripture. Don't go against your conscience. Two, these are very simple, straightforward, not complex at all. Don't be drunk. In fact, that's in our verse at hand, Ephesians 5.18. Don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless action, but be filled by the Spirit. Number three, don't become addicted. Don't get to a place where you depend on something, where you are enslaved to something. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, this can even happen with good things. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. In other words, you're never to get to a point where you are enslaved to anything, even good things in life. Now, for some, this is really obvious, right? It, it could be alcoholism. For the alcoholic, Scripture would say you should stay away from that which is enslaving you. But perhaps there's some people in this room who would say, well, you know what? I'm not, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm not addicted. I just really love it. Like, really love it. Okay, well, you're not an alcoholic. You're an idolater, right? Anytime you love something so much that you have to have it in your life, it's an idol, unless that thing is God. Paul says, don't be dominated by anything. And lastly, don't stumble a weaker brother or sister. If you were to summarize everything that the Bible says about alcohol, you could summarize it with those four points. We'll get to that last one a little later. Now, if the Christian can obey the word of God, which looks pretty simple to me, then it becomes an issue of the gospel. If you're walking in line with the scriptures, if your conscience doesn't condemn you, if you're not getting drunk, if you're not getting addicted, if you're not stumbling a weaker brother, and you don't feel uh, condemned about a certain action, for you, it is an issue of the gospel. We know what the gospel teaches us, right? The gospel teaches you and I that you are accepted by faith in Christ alone. That there is absolutely nothing that you can do in this life to attain that approval. Rather, it comes down from heaven to you because of Jesus' finished work on the cross. Consequently, that means there is nothing you can do or not do to get God's approval. So what's this mean specifically with drinking alcohol? Well, you are neither accepted or rejected regardless of what you do. That's what that means. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8, food will not make us acceptable to God. We are not inferior if we don't eat, and we are not better if we do eat. This is something that's often referred to as Christian freedom or Christian liberty. If the Bible doesn't explicitly or implicitly tell you not to do something, if it's like a, a gray area, if it's a morally neutral ground, then it's an issue of Christian freedom. Meaning after you've done all that the Bible does require, you don't feel particularly convicted about not doing something, then the Bible says to you, do whatever you want. It's not an issue of, uh, uh, of approval. It's not a, an issue of law. It's a gospel issue. And you're not better or worse for that which you do. Now, Christian freedom, Christian liberty, affects a lot more things than drinking alcohol. For example, 
What kind of school do you want to put your kids in? Well, one Christian would say, well, public school, obviously. Another Christian led by the Spirit would say, well, no, homeschool. I want to homeschool my kids. Another person would say, well, no, private school. Yet another person would say, no, Christian private school. Another person would say, no, a public Christian private homeschool or whatever. (laughs) And the list goes on. And for each person, this is a crucial decision to make, right? If you have kids, this this is important. A crucial decision that you have to practice wisdom in and be led by the Spirit in and speak to your spouse and family with in order to make the best possible decision for you and your family. However, other Spirit-filled Christians are going to do different things. So which one is right? None of them. God calls us to make the right decision personally on some of these issues, but some of these things are not universal laws for everybody. Meaning for one person, private school is the right way to go. For another person, it's public school. For another person, it's homeschool. And each person should follow the convictions as they are led by Scripture and the Holy Spirit, but it's going to look different for everybody. We're not to judge another person for not doing what we do. And this goes on and on. Parenting methodology. What type of method are you going to use to raise your kid? That's a crazy one, man. Don't get on someone's bad side with that one. People have different views on what that is, and you should follow your convictions, but there's no universal rule for all people everywhere. Vegetarian, vegan, meat eater, gluten-free, a bunch of different people with different eating habits. That's fine for that particular person based on your convictions and the Holy Spirit, but it's not a universal rule. One person is married, another person is single. One person likes jazz, another person likes country. They're all things that relate to Christian liberty. It's for you to decide between you and God as you are being renewed by the scriptures. So if the Bible doesn't forbid something outright, or even implicitly, it's a gospel issue. You're called to make the best judgment, the wisest judgment that you can with what you know. But you're not better than anyone else for the judgment that you made. The gospel simply frees you to do so. The gospel frees the Christian to either partake or abstain. Think about that one for a while. The gospel is so powerful that it gives a Christian the freedom to partake or abstain. Here's what I mean. Perhaps there's someone in this church who you, you have a, your conscience doesn't condemn you. You don't mind a glass of wine or even a beer. Your conscience doesn't uh, condemn you. You don't give in to drunkenness, you're not an alcoholic, you're not developing or cultivating an addiction. No one else is being stumbled by it. You know what the Bible says to you? The Bible says that the gospel in general, I guess there's always an exception to the rule, but in general, the gospel permits that person to drink alcohol, okay? They are neither worse nor better in relation to their actions. And there is no condemnation. There are some of you in this church, you have that freedom today. And the Bible says that the gospel allows you to have that freedom and liberty. And it's not even that Paul is saying, well, okay, there's like a group of people in church and they like to go chase wine. I guess if you gotta do it, but whatever, weirdos. It's not even like that. The Bible is saying, hey, if you have that freedom, enjoy it. You enjoy every other created thing on the face of the planet. You enjoy relationship. You enjoy breaking bread. You enjoy being in other people's houses. This is no different. If you have the freedom to do that, enjoy it. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 verse 7. Go, eat your bread with pleasure. Drink your wine with a cheerful heart. For God has already accepted your works. Meaning if it is not an issue for your conscience and you're obeying the scriptures, then then have fun, man. And don't be ashamed of what God has not shamed you of. 
And when I roll into Eureka Burger, you know, and I see you in the corner, don't like try to hide your, your beer behind your glass of water all awkwardly. Yeah. When I roll into Cork Tree, don't like pour out the, the glass of wine like I didn't see you when I rolled in or I care. If you have that freedom, have fun. Okay? But listen, the gospel also enables Christians to abstain from alcohol. And there's some of us in this church who perhaps are drinking and we shouldn't be. And I don't know who that is. But perhaps you do. Maybe for you it is an addiction. Maybe it's going that route and God is working on your conscience to stop drinking. The gospel frees you to obey that. Maybe God is calling you to abstain and you've done nothing wrong. Maybe for you, you you never get drunk, you never go too far, there's no addiction. It's just a normal thing. It's like drinking orange juice for you. But maybe God, for whatever reason, maybe because of a witness, someone else is in your life, or maybe he doesn't even want to tell you. God does that sometimes, right? Maybe for some reason God is calling you to abstain from alcohol even though you've done nothing wrong. And the gospel enables you to do that because you're no better or worse if you do or not. Listen, you don't need alcohol to be made whole. That's what the gospel is proclaiming to you. If something can be enjoyed by the Christian, then great. But once it becomes something that you need to have, it's no longer an issue of Christian freedom. That's bondage. Perhaps some of you are recovering from alcoholism. God is calling you away from that which enslaved you. That's okay. That's not, that's not lesser Christianity. You're not less righteous for that. You're being sanctified by Jesus. So maybe for one person, Christian liberty means they can have a glass of wine. For another person, Christian liberty might mean they don't have a glass of wine. And they, in that moment, are walking in freedom because they don't need what used to enslave them. It's going to look different for different people. Paul says in Romans chapter 14, verse 6, whoever eats, eats for the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. And whoever does not eat, it's for the Lord, that he does not eat it, yet he thanks God too. This is fascinating, because at this point, we start to see that the gospel has implications for how we treat each other. Meaning if God has already accepted you, free from works, apart from anything you've done, then we should accept one another in the same way as well. Because in a room like this, there's going to be public schoolers and homeschoolers and private schoolers and wine drinkers and abstainers. There's going to be people who like jazz. There's going to be people who like country and all of the other intricate things that we have varying opinions and convictions on. The Bible says you should be okay with each other and accept one another simply by grace because God has accepted that person. Romans chapter 14, verse 2 through 4. One person believes he may eat anything, but one who is weak eats only vegetables. One who eats must not look down on one who does not eat, and one who does not eat must not criticize one who does, because God has accepted him. Who are you to criticize another's household slave? Before his own Lord, he stands or falls, and he will stand. For the Lord is able to make him stand. All of a sudden, with what Paul is saying, is a paradigm shift in the way that we tend to think about our spirituality. I tend to think of my spirituality as something that I deal with on my own, but Paul says no. Because anyone who has been crucified with Christ has also been crucified into the body of Christ You no longer belong to yourself. You are now a part of a family, and everything that you do affects someone around you. So it's not enough for us to ask, what does the gospel have to say about alcohol, but what does love have to say about alcohol? Well, here's what it has to say. Romans 14, verse 13. Therefore, 
Let us no longer criticize one another. Instead, decide never to put a stumbling block or pitfall in your brother's way. Decide never to put a stumbling block or a pitfall in your brother's way. You know what it means to stumble a brother or a sister? Probably a few of us have heard that phrase more often. Maybe we're used to it. Maybe we've used it ourselves. Typically, the way I've heard it used is generally as someone uh, getting on my nerves or offending me, right? Well, so-and-so, I saw them at the restaurant, and they were, they were drinking a beer. Oh, my goodness. You know what? I have a problem with that. I am deeply offended. I'm, I'm not okay with that. How in the world can that? I'm stumbled right now. I'm stumbled. I'm stumbled. <laughs> when Paul speaks about stumbling a brother, he's using words that are way too strong for such a light meaning. He's not talking about annoying a neighbor. He's not speaking about perturbing or offending. He isn't even speaking about somebody doing something that you don't agree with. Look at a church the size. We're going to do millions of things that we don't agree with. He's speaking not about offending a fellow believer. He's speaking about ruining a fellow believer at the very core of their faith in Jesus Christ. This is far more than disagreeing with somebody. This is being ruined in your very faith in Christ. Turn to 1 Corinthians, stay where we are, but turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 where we see a vivid picture of this by Paul. Paul is right now speaking to some mature believers and an issue comes up because in Corinth, it's just made of a bunch of messy people. And out of that mess, some new believers spring out who are saved from paganism in which they were used to these practices in which the food that they ate were being devoted or given to idols as a, an act of worship. So they are now coming out of that and this issue comes up in the community. Well, what happens when we get food like from, you know, what happens when we get food that's been dedicated to an idol? Do we not eat it? Do we throw it away? Do we eat like non-dedicated food? Do we got to like tag the right food and make sure it's not been, like keep it isolated from the, uh, how do we deal with this? And Paul looks at these people and he says to some of the mature brothers and, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, he says, he says this, listen, and I won't read the whole thing, but he says in the first part of chapter eight, he says, listen, you and I, we know, we have knowledge about such things. We know that idols aren't real. Therefore, it's not even a big deal. You can eat food that's laying on a table. You can eat food that someone has dedicated to an idol. We have knowledge that is beyond that. We know that idols are simply nothing. There's only one God that we worship. Plus, everything that we eat is sanctified by prayer and the word anyway. So whatever. But look at what he says in verse 7. However, not everyone has this knowledge. In fact, some have been so used to idolatry up until now that when they eat food offered to an idol, their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not make us acceptable to God. We are not inferior if we don't eat, and we are not better if we do eat. But be careful that this ride of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, the one who has this knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? Then the weak person, the brother for whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge. Now when you sin like this against the brothers and wound their weak conscience, you're sinning against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to fall, I will never eat meat Again, so that I won't cause my brother to fall. In other words, the gospel gives the Christian freedom. But your freedom is overruled by love. The gospel gives you a tremendous amount of freedom. But your freedom is often overruled by love. 
Now, what does this look like? Because I don't want us going out there being like, okay, I can't do anything unless someone with a telescope is watching me. God isn't calling us to tiptoe around everybody and everything. Remember, this is an issue of someone's faith being destroyed. Let me give you an example just to make this really hard and fast. Let's say Christ saves somebody out of alcoholism and out of despair and sin, saves them and transfers them into the kingdom of his marvelous light. And in the process of that, they are recovering from what they have been enslaved to. They were alcoholics. Now they're recovering. They're getting right. God is healing them. They don't know a whole lot. Maybe they don't even know a whole lot about the gospel. But you do. And let's say you roll in And because of your influence as a mature believer, somehow, I don't know how this would take place, use your imagination, somehow, because of your influence, you pressure that person into drinking. And so now, what you have is a person going against, maybe that person is going against their conscience because someone who has influenced them that they look up to is giving them permission to do so. And as a consequence, they jack up their life. They plunge back into alcoholism. They uh, lose uh, their uh, status. They they, uh, struggle in their, their family. They lose a whole bunch of stuff. They're hurting. They're in despair. Not only that, but let's just say that person, because they view you as this mature believer, all of a sudden, they're, they're not gonna blame you. Maybe their first inclination is, what did I do wrong? That person was drinking, he can drink, he has Christian liberty, and he told me I could too. So what's wrong with me? All of a sudden, their faith begins to unravel, and they plunge back to where they started, into that which they were enslaved in, and their faith in Christ takes a shot. Now their faith isn't in Jesus, it's in what they are able to or not able to do. And that, my friend, is on you. You've caused someone to stumble. But Christian liberty is a two-way street. Let me give you an example on the opposite end of the spectrum. Let's say someone comes from a background where alcohol is treated maturely. Uh, I have some Italian friends, and I don't know if this is true of all Italians, but these particular Italians love wine, okay? Like, the faucet doesn't even have water in it. It's just wine. (laughs) Now, for this particular family, they enjoy it. They don't sin with it. They treat it maturely. It's just as much a part of their social and family life as uh, chicken on the table. For them, it's an okay thing. But let's say that person rolls into a restaurant with your comm group, and you see them order a glass of wine, you you just mad dog them. Maybe they see how you're treating them, you being a mature believer that knows a lot. You mad dog them. And they, they maybe forego that glass of wine. Maybe they change their entire lifestyle. Maybe they abstain for the rest of their lives. But not because God told them to. And not because they were condemned in what they were doing by their conscience, but because you caused them to feel less holy for something God never condemned in their life. So what happens with them? Well, their abstinence is now coming from a self-destructive place of self-righteousness. Now what they are doing, they are doing in order to get your approval. And since you are that person that pours into them, since you are that person that that they believe is an influential person that knows God, now that transfers from that person to God. So if this person who I really look up to is chastising me for something that I'm doing, then maybe God is thinking the same thing. All of a sudden, they went from a place of salvation by grace alone back to works-based salvation. And it's your fault. You have caused a brother or sister to stumble. You know what love says about this whole issue? It says that we have rights and we must give up those rights if our rights stumble a weaker brother or sister in the Lord. The gospel gives us tremendous freedom, but that freedom must be 
submitted to God if it causes someone else who's weaker to stumble. Now, what does Paul mean by weaker? That almost sounds condescending, right? Like, what if someone called you a weaker brother? You'd be like, excuse me? Listen, every Christian starts off in this place. I want to I clarify what weakness does not mean. Weakness does not mean you don't drink. Paul's goal here is not to get Christians to drink. This has nothing to do with that. Weakness does not mean uh, you're abstinent. Remember, some of you should be. Some Christians should not drink. And for you, that's a sign of strength in the Holy Spirit. Nor, nor does weakness mean drinking. Rather, weakness is an issue revolving around the object of your faith. And everybody starts off here. We started off as spiritually dead people who are trying to make something out of our lives in order to uh, find justification with who we were. We met Jesus Christ. He blew the door off of that self-righteousness, showed us how sinful we were and how great of a savior he was. And we somehow got to a place of dependence on his works and his death and his resurrection by grace alone and not by anything that we have done. And so at that point, when you go from I'm doing this all on my own, you're in a place of weakness and you are now being sanctified to be strong in faith in Christ alone. This could happen, weakness can affect Anyone on any end of the spectrum, it could be the person who says, I, I'm accepted by God if I abstain. That's weakness. But it can also be the person who just freely just kicks them back and says, you know what, I'm proving my acceptance because I, I, I have this Christian freedom. I, I'm flaunting it to show people I'm gospel-centered. That's weakness too. See, for Paul, food and drink aren't the real issue. The real issue is Christians maturing in their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And sometimes the Bible, that's one of the big reasons why a Christian might abstain from something that is otherwise permissible for that person. It's to temporarily meet someone in their place in order to minister to that person. That's why Paul, after moving through Romans chapter 14 about giving up your rights and becoming weak for those who are weak, says in Romans chapter 15 verse 1, now we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not to please ourselves. In other words, Paul is saying, yeah, there, will be there might be times in your life where you have to forego a freedom that God has given you in order to reach someone because they are in that same exact place, but you're not to leave them in that place of weakness. Again, I want to be absolutely clear. Paul is not saying a sign of strength is to get everybody to drink. No. Paul is teaching those who are strong are to work and be patient with weaker brothers and sisters to make sure that their faith is focused on Jesus Christ alone, not anything that they do or do not do. The end goal is not to tiptoe around each other in hopes of not offending one another. The goal is to mutually move our attention onto Jesus. And Paul was often, frequently, giving up his rights for people who are not in the same place. And yet he never stayed in a place of weakness. That actually, for Paul to stay in a place that was weakness would have been for him a sin. It was always for the end goal of lifting other people up to see that their sanctification, their justification, their glorification, their transformation is in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19 through 23. Although I am a free man and not any, anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win Jews. To those under the law, like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. <laughs> what? 
to those who are without the law, like one without the law, not being without God's law, but within God's law to win those without the law. To the, to the weak, I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that I may by every possible means save some. Now I do all this because of the gospel so I may become a partner in its benefits. For Paul, the issue is always revolving around how to get people to better see that their life is caught up in Jesus Christ and not in the things that they do to get his attention. And so to be strengthened here means that you have been freed or are continually being freed from any uh, attempt to perform for God or each other. And that strength can be allotted to someone who drinks alcohol. It can also be allotted to someone who doesn't because the person who drinks doesn't uh, trip out about what other people think and the person who drinks does not worry about whether God accepts them because they are accepted in Christ. And the person who abstains because God has called them to that doesn't have to trip out in a circle of people who have a Christian liberty to drink wine or whatever because they know they have been accepted by God outside of those things. To be strengthened means that we are beginning to get the gospel. And this is usually made visible. On paper, it's often abstract, but it's really made visible in relationships with one another. That's where it really counts, you know? I love this verse, Romans 14, 17. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. We know our church is growing in the strength that Paul speaks about. Not when we're all doing the same things that everyone else is doing, now, when we match up to other people's convictions, we know that we're growing in strength and Christian maturity when our relationships begin to be marked by righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And that's going to look different for everybody. In a building this size, in a church this size, there are going to be people from all different backgrounds, from all different convictions, lots of gray areas, lots of different ways of doing things. And all of those people should be able to come together and meet in one place and love each other. Why? Because the gospel frees you to do that. Because in that place, you might not have a thing in common with the person sitting next to you, but you have one thing in common. You were a sinner, and you were saved by grace. And so now you are experientially tasting and feeling the righteousness and peace and joy as being given to you by the Holy Spirit. So here's what the Bible has to say about alcohol. Nothing is inherently bad just because it exists. It's made bad when we do bad things with it. So God gives us wise counsel to not destroy our lives. And for some Christians, it, for, for any Christian that obeys the law, not only written law, but the law on their hearts, their conscience, for you, you have Christian liberty to do what you want. For others, you have Christian liberty to abstain from it, and there's going to be both of those in a church, in our church. Of course, all of us are to be ruled by love, saying that even our, our, our best-held freedoms take a back seat to the well-being of others. If I were to summarize everything that the Bible had to say about alcohol, it would be that. But what's Paul say about it specifically here? This is my last point. What does Paul say about alcohol in Ephesians 5, verse 18? It's actually really simple. I want you to think about this for a second. What, what does alcohol do to a person when they get drunk? It robs them of their control. A person loses control of their mind, their thoughts, their bodies, their desires. If it's a Christian, they lose, they lose control of, of the will of God. Their desire for God is, is muddied and blurried. We lose control. Why do people get drunk in the first place? Think about that. 
For those of you that have gotten drunk, probably a lot of people, come on, just be real. For a lot of people, what was the reason that you did it? Whether it was a Friday night party in Isla Vista or uh, downtown Ventura or whether it was a, 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 after a long day of work, you come home or maybe a, some friction uh, in your family or between spouses and you crack open a bottle and you drink too much. What's the prime motivation behind that? I'm willing to bet 95% of the time that it is because we want to alter reality in some way. The reality that we are experiencing at the moment is not good, and so we want to change it. We do it by altering it, by self-medicating, by taking it into our own hands and changing it ourselves. And in the process of doing it, we lose control of everything. And Paul, he's not picking on drinks. He's not speaking arbitrarily. He's speaking about one thing as a case study, and he's using, in contrast to that, what the Holy Spirit does in the life of a Christian. If, a, if, if drunkenness causes a person to lose control, what does the Holy Spirit do? The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. If alcohol, when it's abused and when, uh, when someone is drinking too much, what does it do to a person? It dumbs down reality. What does the Holy Spirit do? He makes reality more real. He makes it more vivid. He doesn't allow you to escape from your problems. He plunges you into your problems and he gives you a greater view of reality in the person of, his son, of the Son, Jesus Christ. The way that the Holy Spirit changes your life and enriches reality is by giving you a better view of Jesus in the midst of your reality so that you're able to read your broken marriage through the lens of Jesus Christ. You're able to read your broken family through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're able to read your problems in life through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit changes your life by causing you to see Jesus and how he affects you. And this is what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. You want to talk about Christian freedom? It's the Holy Spirit, man. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does not sanctify us by causing us to escape from our situation or dumbing down reality. He plunges us into the middle of it by giving us a greater view of Jesus Christ. And so Paul isn't just trying to be a Scrooge. He's not just throwing around random arbitrary commands. Stop it, stop it, stop it. In this case, he's giving us a merciful prohibition. Don't be drunk with wine so that he can give us a promise. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. See, some of you in this church today are listening to me and you're like, you have no qualms with alcohol whatsoever. Maybe you don't even like the taste. This isn't even an issue for you. And you're so irritated right now. You're like, I can't believe you spent 40 minutes on stage. I, I should have stayed in bed. But you work 40 hours a week. You work 80 hours a week, 90 hours a week, because you can't stand going home. Some of you sleep all day because you can't face the reality of being awake. Some of you overeat. Some of you undereat. All to alleviate this pain. Some of you work out, pump iron. It's paying off because you're looking good. But for others, you, you put on your body physical pain to alleviate a far worse pain that maybe goes on in your mind or in your relationships. Some of you drowned your sorrows and success and human approval, making money. Some of you self-medicate, maybe on sports, maybe on parties, family. Some of you or addicted to porn because it pulls you out of that reality that you can't face. You notice about all of these things, except, except for pornography, all of these things are actually good things. Work and play and sleep and eating and success and money, and those things are good things. 
given to us for our enjoyment. We can throw alcohol in there too. But everything good becomes destructive when we use them as a replacement for what only God can accomplish in your life. When we begin to use things in our life to bring us hope and to bring us security and to bring us fulfillment, we turn to other things to deaden the pain of reality because we can't handle it. That's where we begin to err. And God is right now inviting you not to escape and deaden and blur your pain and to escape from reality, but to waken to the reality of Jesus Christ. For Colossians chapter 2 tells us that Jesus himself is reality. That's where we get the name of our church. Jesus is reality. And Jesus did not just overcome the world that is souring your experience, but he places you in heavenly places right next to him, and he makes you more than conquerors in Christ Jesus your Lord. And this reality is what the filling of the Holy Spirit makes more vivid. It's a deeper revelation of what God has brought to you in Christ. You don't have to hide and escape from your problems anymore. You need more of Jesus. And more of Jesus is revealed to us in lavish form by the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we're going to be studying for the rest of the summer. So may he visit us for the next few months, and maybe may he start this afternoon in our hearts and in this place, in Jesus' name. Holy Spirit, ask today that you would shepherd our souls today. You would navigate us through maybe some of the things that we are thinking or wrapping our heads around. And we ask, Lord, that maybe for some of us, we don't know, uh, maybe for all of us, we don't know a, a, a lot of things, but this we know. We are a church that is desperately in need of Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would save us from making it about all of these other issues. Important issues nonetheless, but issues that don't save. I pray that in this church you would cause us to see Christ Jesus crucified, risen, sitting at the right hand of the Father, that person who authors and constructs and builds our faith. And Lord, we declare right now that we are a weak people that need our faith to be sat upon the rock that is Christ Jesus. And so where we're unable to do that, we pray that, Holy Spirit, you would pour yourself out in this church and give us a grand view, a deeper revelation of who Jesus is. Pray these things in your name. Amen.